0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, the Ur-Man rises from the Mesopotamian swamps to stamp out rumors that aliens were the biological fathers in the mitochondrial Eve paternity case. Tomes get pwned by stars over there.
2: Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals. By Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now.
1: Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel.
2: And I'm editorial assistant Christopher Rocchio.
1: Hey, we talked live in the studio this time, although it was yesterday we made the recording, with David Drake this time. Uh, And we talk about his novel Starliner. This is a new edition of Dave's book, which originally came out a few years back. This one featuring all new art on the cover, really nice, by Dominic Harmon. Dave talks about the genesis of the book and discusses the great steamliners of yore, on which he based the Starliner in the book, The Empress of Earth.
2: Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of the Lee Universe novel, Alliance of Equals, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news.
1: We have two really nice little science fiction gems on the website this month. These are stories that were the grand prize winner and the first runner-up in the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Competition for 2017. The first of these is called Feldspar. It's by Philip A. Kramer. I was there, by the way, when we gave these out in, uh, at the International Space Development Conference in St. Louis this year. Feldspar is the grand prize winner of the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award. And author Philip A. Kramer, Ph.D., is a biomedical researcher specializing in metabolism, oxidative stress, and aging research. Philip was a really cool guy to talk about with all this uh, biochemical stuff, and and he's working on genetics component of all this. We're going to try to get him to write some nonfiction for us as well. He's been writing science fiction from a tender age, though. This is an excellent story. It's set on Mars, and the hero is this drone rover driver who's on Earth who is trying to rescue an astronaut in distress who's actually there on Mars. And there's, you know, this 18-minute delay back and forth in radio transit and how they overcome that, how he overcomes that. It's It's a really cool story.
2: Also on the front page is Bullet Catch, the first runner-up of the 2017 Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award competition. Author Stephen Lawson has served on three deployments with the U.S. Navy and is currently a helicopter pilot for the Kentucky National Guard. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife and is an MBA student as well. His writing has appeared in the Writers of the Future Volume 33 anthology, Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, and Daily Science Fiction. He also has a story upcoming at Galaxy's Edge. This is another Mars story. Seems to be a theme this year. Yes. It's about a sick baby on Mars and the attempt to use a railgun delivery method to get needed assistance to the red planet from Earth. And what it takes to catch such a speeding bullet.
1: Feldspar by Philip A. Kramer and Bullet Catch by Stephen Lawson are now on Bane.com and will be available long term in the ebook collection. Free Short Stories 2017 can be downloaded for free at Bain ebooks. I want to welcome, David Drake, to the podcast once again. Hello, Dave.
3: Hi, podcast. Hi, Bane readers, listeners.
1: Well, David Drake is the prototype from which they built the other <laughs> Bane writers from spare parts that he's dropped over the years. Along with Jim Bane, he defined much. He defined and defines much of the tenor of what we do here at Bane Books. Um, Dave is the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammers Military Science Fiction series, and more recently, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series. He's the co-author on a host of other series, ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the Citizen series with John Lambshead and the General series with S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and me, Tony Daniel. Uh, the latest in that series is, are The Heretic and the Savior, by the way. Uh, Dave is also the author of two high fantasy series and maybe more, but two more recent ones um, including the Lord of the Isles series and the Book of the Elements series. He's a, well I know you've got others, fantasy. But uh, it's
3: yeah. My is, my first novel was a fantasy.
1: It's very difficult to mention everything. <laughs> <laughs> that we would be going on. Yeah, he's a prolific short story writer, and much of his early work is collected in in recent Bane offering, uh, Night and Demons, a wonderful collection of, of Dave's early work and his, um, I guess, horror stories.
3: Um, yeah, um, mo- yeah, well, fantasy horror. Fantasy. Yeah.
1: And uh, some of Dave's tra- time travel-related stories are in the collection *Dinosaurs and a Dirigible*. Um, he's a graduate of Duke Law School, a Vietnam vet, where he served in the Eleventh—wait, Eleventh Black Horse Regiment. Did I finally get this right?
3: Well, it the Eleventh Armored Cavalry, the Black Horse.
1: The Eleventh
3: Armored Cavalry Regiment, the Black Horse. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, technically, it isn't correct because. The word regiment is not properly used. However, in NAM, we all did. Our stationery said 11th ACR. So if if you hear somebody talk about the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, it probably means he was there because if he'd looked it up in a book, he would have gotten it different and therefore wrong.
1: It would be squadron because it's
3: cavalry. Uh, no, uh, squadron is the—you break a regiment, a cavalry regiment, down into squadrons. Huh. So there were three squadrons with a black horse, and each squadron had three field troops and one tank company because you, cavalry doesn't have companies and armor doesn't have squadrons. So there.
1: Okay. Um, he also reads Latin for pleasure <laughs> And in order to mine many of his plots From history, from history's ore um, Now out from Bain Books At Booksellers Everywhere Is a shiny new edition of a novel That first appeared in 1992, I believe Yes it did Which is now officially a long time ago The latest edition has A really beautiful new Dominic Harmon cover art, I think mm-hmm. And that book is Starliner Dave, I recognize several Drake motifs in this one, such as your FTL method, uh, moving through sponge space. I mean.
3: Yeah, but you know, faster-than-light travel is just a way to have a story. Uh, you can write interstellar science fiction without FTL, uh, but it tends to be pretty bad. Uh, the there are exceptions, but uh, Sprig to camp. Did reality conscious uh, science fiction novels that and stories which are almost entirely forgotten, which is a pity because they were good stories um the you know the early ones uh i it doesn't really matter how you do it. the idea is to have a story, and that's what I'm focused on
1: well you i mean you make use of 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 the FTL element, in that um, it's uh, it's it's almost a hellish environment. Um, yes, that um, you have a you have a group called the Coal Crew that that works outside, and they are they are some rough and tough customers.
3: Yeah, uh, they're based on the stokers of the um, steamships before turbines came in. much more efficient, Uh, and the the Stokers were a really brutal group of people. I mean, literally, there was no way you could punish them that was as bad as their normal working environment, and it meant if they got into a fight, which certainly happened a lot, uh, the officers just backed off and let them go to it because there was no way to you you cannot punish people who work in 140 degree heat and live steam you know um, I tried to come up with the equivalent extremely uncomfortable circumstances and you know to have the same effect for story purposes but there's there's always going to be somebody who's doing the really awful grunt work and um they they tend to go in hard and come out well actually usually come out dead but uh
1: there in, in publishing there's no way you could you could punish a slush reader
3: for instance yeah exactly that's, that's exactly you know And I've I've had that job. (laughs) You could
1: always, well, I can see it in your eyes, like you in the cold. There's a haunted feeling, Mm. a haunted look in your eyes if you've read slush. God. (laughs) But was Starliner a um, standalone originally intended to be?
3: Yes, absolutely. Look, I was trying, this is the early 90s. I was trying to get out of, being tagged with the uh, the master of military science fiction Uh, because I expected military science fiction to take a huge hit because the Cold War had ended and the military was being downsized by a third and a very high percentage of the sales for military science fiction were on base, you know, military bases, and they were going to be closed. And in fact, that did happen. Uh, But I was trying to get publishers to listen to me and publish something of mine that was not military science fiction. And um, so I, I wrote some things that were not military science fiction, and damned if they don't Come out with Master of Military Science Fiction on the cover. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I it was frustrating. Um, well, a lot of things were frustrating. Uh, yeah,
1: well, I mean, nevertheless, that you you do have a sort of Merchant Marine hero. In, oh you know, yeah, who's who, who has yeah. a military background and
3: uh, Jim,
1: or at least his father would did.
3: Yeah. Uh, jim wanted he let me do star i wanted to do an action adventure space opera uh based on the equivalent of the top liners of the the early 1900s you know the the golden age of the liner was really uh 1900 to the beginning of World War One, and I I wanted to set something in that equivalent and just have it a series of adventure stories in colorful worlds because you know this is before television it's before practical moving pictures really and people who really wanted to see a distant culture had to go there and that was either very expensive or very difficult depending on what class you traveled in and uh, i was just i wanted a story jim said he'd let me do starliner but it had to be starliner at war well i could do that too hell i i can do pretty much anything uh and he he was letting me have, the book I wanted to write, but it was always intended to be a standalone.
1: Yeah, well, there is, I mean, there's a, a sort of overarching theme of there's a war that is beginning and then is declared during the, the course of the book. But a lot, of, I mean, it is a pisc- picaresque sort of uh, yes. novel. Yes, yes. It's like they, our hero goes to several worlds mm-hmm. and has adventures there. It, exactly, really cool. But um, yeah. And he does, you know, he he grows in the process, um, and so especially after he comes to terms with his dad and such. But but it's not a it's not a novel that has a um, it, one thing happens and then another thing happens in this book, and yes. they're all cool little vignette sort of things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really fun to read in that way. It, it was
3: not intended to be a densely plotted novel. And although the fellow isn't the same man at the end of it as when he goes in, the story isn't really about the changes in his personality. It's about what's going on and these neat things that we're seeing.
1: Well, uh, the main character, perhaps, of the book is not Rand so much as the ship itself. Um, The Empress of Earth. Mm-hmm. this is one big ship um, in addition to the crew it's hauling multiple classes even of, of passengers and there's different cultures within the crew it seems like one of the, the great like you said it, it really does come across as one of the great passenger liners of yore, yeah, but in space um,
3: I, I was sitting there with a schematic of the, of the French line Normandy uh, probably the greatest of the great liners Uh, in service only very briefly before war broke out. And then uh, the U.S. Navy destroyed it and sank it in uh, New York Harbor through sheer incompetence. Hmm. Yeah, that that isn't the way the Navy tells it. But if you look at a a Hitchcock, if, if you see the Hitchcock movie Saboteur, there is... A scene of the Nazi agent driving the hero uh, down South Street, and they pass the capsized Normandy, capsized inner berth there, and the Nazi points to it and nods. And you're supposed to realize from that that the Nazis sabotaged it and sank her in harbor. Well they didn't. The the Navy did. Uh but but not out of not because there were traitors, but because they were incompetent. Uh she caught fire while she was being refitted into a troop ship. And this this is the sort of thing that just happens. I mean there were a series of mistakes occurred, but you know, okay, this happens. Um and they then began pumping water into her and the uh, the architect of the ship was in new york city at the time mm-hmm. and told the officer in command that they were going to sink her she was going to turn turtle she was a tender ship and he wanted to go in and open the scuttling uh, valves so that she would sink in harbor on an even keel. Uh, Because there was no way to keep her from sinking. And the naval officer in charge said, go away, Uh, this is a Navy job now, buddy. And so the Navy got on with the job of sinking the Normandy.
1: And the not sinking on the even keel, it warped it to such an extent? Oh, it it was hopeless. Uh,
3: She was... With huge expense, uh, refloated, but she was never used. I mean, she had to be scrapped as soon as she'd been. Uh, and this was this came out almost on top of of Pearl Harbor. So, they were, the Navy, having screwed up at Pearl Harbor pretty badly, uh, was not in. In any mood to admit that they'd just sunk the largest finest liner in the world mm. also um, but that that is a true story
1: what, what what did these what made these liners so fine and and how did you translate that over into the star liner so...
3: they they were luxurious uh they were huge they were the top um really technological they, they were the technological pinnacles of their time these were amazing wonderful ships uh, they had fine artwork um, the uh, the Normandy's uh, grand dining room was head uh, uh, panels of Lalique glass, uh, the the bronze doors into that dining room are actually on a New York City cathedral now. <laughs> they they were successfully salvaged.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Where are they? The where are they? Doing? I I, I
3: it's readily available, but I don't have to the. the
1: I wonder if it's St. John's or if it's. The Catholic one, which name is now escaping me, which I know quite well.
3: Yeah, probably know. the Catholic one, but yeah. these huge bronze doors—I've seen photographs of yeah. them. You know, on the the church. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, what? It, what
1: how were they manned? It, it's. Um,
3: they they had huge crews. You had a complete dichotomy between the passenger crews, the the people who were there to take care of the passengers and this is not you can think of it as a luxury hotel but it's really multiple hotels because you do have different classes and first class was uh, had world-class chefs of uh, incredibly luxurious surroundings and
1: spacious cabins
3: oh spacious cabins and um servants you know <laughs> cabin crew uh and then there were the people who sailed the ship who were also very high end and you you progressed in a large shipping line
1: so uh, there's sort of two two separate groups of officer separate. class yes
3: wholly separate huh. Uh, it, it's uh, almost the same as an aircraft carrier, where you have the air crews and the ship's crews, and as I recall, uh, it's the fellow in command of the aircraft component who is in overall command. Uh, and I, basically the same was true on um, a luxury liner. The the person who was in charge of the human side was really calling the shots, not the fellows who did the semen work. I don't mean they didn't get along together or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it, but... Uh,
1: they had different functions.
3: Yeah, completely different. And you did not pass from one to the other because what's required for the one is different from what's required for the other. The...
1: um. The first class, and then there's there's a sort of almost first class,
3: first class, uh, second class, and then third class. eh, Sometimes, eh, if very often at this point, they usually called it steerage. And
1: uh, and in in the book, they are transporting colonists. Yes, Um, many of them indentured. Folks yes. that have no idea what they're getting into.
3: Absolutely not. Mm. Which is pretty much the case. Um, the It was the immigrant traffic before the U.S. passed uh, the first immigration laws in the early 20s. It was the immigrant traffic that really paid for these big liners. Really? Yes. So
1: they, there was a real reason to cram those. Oh, yeah. The steerage full of people. Uh, the.
3: They tended to be um central european jews uh that's that's basically the largest number of people who were coming from europe uh to north america to well Canada but mainly to new york and um, the the big german lines of uh, hamburg america and um hell what's the other one blocking on it uh, but both of them had villages in uh in germany these train loads of would-be immigrants would arrive in germany be loaded into camps and these were basically quarantine camps because if disease broke out on the ship not only did you have a huge problem on the ship but the passengers would not be allowed to disembark at Ellis Island so contagious diseases were removed, culled, in Germany before hmm. uh, they were loaded on the ships. Uh, th- this was simply a matter of economics. And um, it's also why quite a lot of the later liners had more smokestacks than they really had Uh because immigrants tended to think that the more stacks a ship had, the um, the finer it was. Uh, that's why, if you look at a picture of the Normandy, mm-hmm. you'll see three stacks, but only two of them are real. Uh, There's a movie theater in the in the third.
1: Oh. Wow. So, uh, they-
3: <laughs> and and there were a lot of four-stack ships that really should have been two, huh. but yeah.
1: For the, well, I never realized that because you, you it wasn't out of anybody's uh, humanitarian gestures that, that immigrants were crowded onto these boats. The immigrants no. were paying for the rich people's
3: passage. Uh, they were. You know? They were. Uh, the the real money was coming from the steerage class, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and they weren't exactly treated badly. Uh, it was brutal conditions, but remember, there is a reason they've left the shtettles. Uh You well, know, that's
1: what, that's what uh, our our hero says again and again in the book. Is like, you know, when they talk about the heart, the hellish conditions they're migrating to. He says, "We, well, you don't know where they came from, but yeah. I've, I've seen these places."
3: Yes, and that's so. the thing. Um, yes, this was horrible and brutal, but it's. Better than what they had before. And I, I'm not saying this makes it right, but this is the reality.
1: And outside of the ship are these coal crew uh, maniacs. Yeah. And, and Rand started out in a coal crew. Right? Yes. He's our hero. Is he's, um,
3: he, he's worked his way up.
1: Yeah, and, and he's he meets some members of the current coal crew who can't. It's like, why would you ever do such a <laughs> yeah. thing? Yeah, well But <laughs> you want to stay in hell with us? Yeah.
3: <laughs> there there is something about doing the toughest job there is, something about being with the this I have seen, uh the toughest, hardest military unit in the world. Because I've been there. <laughs> I rode with the black horse. Uh Regiment, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that that's the thing. Um once you're there, uh you can look down on everybody. Uh you you know you're tougher than they are. And of course these people are. <laughs> I
2: mean
1: Well you have and and the, the camaraderie doesn't leave, or at least the respect and, and you have him talk. Yeah. Um talk some folks out of uh of <laughs> of gangbanging a, a hooker. <laughs> And killing a pimp, yeah, um, which he, he he can understand that wh- why they're after this, but uh, he's, he he talks them down um, because they still have that connection. Yeah, that
3: that's a good scene. It it doesn't make him a saint. He's working with what he's got, and yeah, he knows where they're coming from. And no, this is a bad idea. Let's not do that. But you don't tell them that they can't do that because they know damn well they can. There's nobody who can stop them if they want to. So, and you know, just okay, that's the reality.
1: Yeah, and the and, and we know that he's uh, not a Night and shining harbor because he uh, uh, accepts the girl's payment in in trade. For, well, for so, I'm, 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 yeah. you know, this
3: is not a saint. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's. I like the fact that you know he's he's been touring around with his friend the uh, his his boss and friend the second the second mate second yep. mate who is also um, a woman and he says you got to wait just wait twenty minutes if, yeah. <laughs> if you can take care of this little yeah uh, uh, it, and and he he almost did it to 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 make the prostitute feel better because she's like, you're not good enough. I'm not good enough for you.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, "Oh, no. anybody's good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's the thing. In his mind, he knows exactly where the cold crew is coming from. And uh, he doesn't think he's better than anybody. He knows he's not. Yeah. Well, let's
1: talk about him a little bit. He grew up on this world called Bifrost. He had a tough childhood on a tough world, and his dad was, he's got a, a kind of love-hate relationship with his dad. His dad's a tough old bastard who went off to war and came back. Um, but he, one of the things that his dad brought back was the learning machine, yeah. and that's really um, Rand's ticket out
3: yeah. in the end. He's a bright kid, and he, he used it. He was willing to do whatever he had to do, but he knew what he had to do.
1: And there's, um, he's become, uh, he's, he, uh, he's a consummate and punctilious officer that is mm. also kind of at ease. Um, there's a, there's a lot more under Rand's surface appearance than this sort of, uh, you know, clean-cut young third uh, <laughs> in command. Um, he's self-made. Nobody can. T- Nobody can, like, um, poor mouth, you know, I I came from harder circumstances than <laughs> you and get away with it. No, they didn't. Um,
3: <laughs> he's been cold crew.
1: Yeah. So, um, tell, I mean, tell us a little bit more about this. Um, one of the things that, one of the great scenes in the book is, is his father has bequeathed um, some recordings of having, of the battles that he's fought in. He didn't ever want Rand to see these things um, before. They're they're like uh, you know, a uh, cop camera.
3: Yeah, you know, yeah they're they helmet footage. Yeah, of somebody who carried a flamethrower.
1: Never had that before. His dad died. His dad died on him before his. They he was old enough to really explain anything to him. Mm-hmm. So they go to. Um, it's later in the book, but they the he and Wanda the uh, the um, second uh, mate go to. This this battle area, I think it's called Thackerville or At Tankerville. Or Thackerville. Yeah, Thackerville. Mm-hmm. and they um and, and he puts on this, uh, this device and basically follows his father's footsteps through the thing and and sees what his father saw. Um, and it's it's an incredible experience for him, I and mean, it's a, it's a wonderful flashback for us, and it's a great flashback scene in the book as well. But it's got all these levels going on of of the son coming to understand. Uh, you know, maybe why his dad was cold and standoffish and,
3: uh, and- crazy as a bedbug. Yeah. And I've, I've got a close friend now whose father had a bad war, and um, never talked about it until he had a stroke, and then stuff started coming out. But there was a lot of behavior in his father. That my friend didn't understand until he became a lot older, and to a degree, reading my stuff, and he got a notion of where.
1: You have a lot of veterans that, <laughs>
3: that
1: identify with your work.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, no, I, it's real. Uh, I, it's real. I, I don't try and clean it up, and I, I think that's the thing. I don't try and clean it up. Uh, no, this is this is what it was like, and they know that's what it was like. I uh, that that until I glanced over the book again <laughs> to do this, by the way, because uh, remember I wrote this twenty five years ago. I got some stuff out then. That I'm not sure I realized until I reread that, I didn't know that I understood it that well then, because I do get a lot of things right.
1: Was, this was uh, perhaps on the road to redliners.
3: It was, yeah, yeah. I, um, I look. I just wanted to write. A fun, exciting space opera. And I did that, but I was getting some other stuff out and, as you say, um, setting myself up to get some more stuff
1: out. To up. examine it in, in a deep fashion in, the, yeah. in, in Dave's novel, Redliners. Lighters. Uh, that's what we're referring to. Yeah. There are, uh, I mean, there is also a light side, like, like we're referring to. We have this great comic relief act throughout <laughs> the. I, these yeah. guys are like, um, are they telling the truth? Or are they not? It's uh, you know, they're they're like Montebanks, um, Wade, yeah. and Belgeds Belgedes, yeah. Belgedies, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Wade is this. He's the braggart. He's seen everything, but he he's, he he talks in a, in a seemingly self-deprecating way that makes him seem even greater, <laughs> and he's got his yes man in uh, Bill Geddes, who's who's like, "Oh yes, General." Well, tell him about this, General, or tell him about that. Um,
3: yeah. <laughs> They're good. They're good it, people. It
1: gives you backstory, and uh, and it gives you a little humor as well. Um, and it's it's hard to you know talk about comedy, but. Uh, <laughs> But but they my favorite is when uh, one of the passengers I think it's D calls him on on something. Um, he, he takes them to a shooting gallery and says, yes. "Well, here, shoot then." And they they manage to talk their way out of this <laughs> yeah. and like in uh, in complex ways. They they end up not shooting at, mm. the, at the shooting galleries because they had claimed he he had uh, claimed to have gone out with the coal crew and shot skeets out in sponge space um, yeah. or something like that. So, um, and he was better than the coal crew at shooting even. So they, you know, <laughs> Somebody was trying to call him. But you can't call these guys because they're just too slippery. Um,
3: uh, I, I think we've all met that sort of people.
1: Yeah. yeah. Often, yeah, there's a lot in science fiction, aren't there?
3: Oh, yes, there are. <laughs>
1: So and we have a pair of tragic lovers who are very sympathetic, um, which are uh Franz Stresemann and um Stresman. Stresman yeah. and um and Oan. Juan. Juan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think her last name is Lin.
3: Oh yeah.
1: She's a, a princess from Navassa, which mm-hmm. is a Ming dynasty sort of planet, right? The,
3: well the name's Vietnamese. <laughs> oh, <fine. laughs>
1: She's a, yeah, a South Asian sort of uh, of, of princess uh, mm-hmm. in the making, and he's from a the planet of um, Granholm, which is a,
3: think of Prussia.
1: Yeah, yeah, and y'all These are the these are the two entities that are going to war in the book, right? Mm-hmm. That's um, Grandholm and Navassa, um are going to war, and and these star-crossed lovers just happen to fall in love right at that in that moment and there is um there's something else that's that seems to me to be a a a drake sort of um motif in that the young man does not want to fight but he's going to because of his honor um the fact that he's a stress mom mom, um he's uh, he has his duty yeah and because of that we know that that she and he are going to be on opposite sides in a war soon and yet they're trying to make the most of their love while, the, while they can.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
3: There's a lot going on in the book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very nice Romeo and Juliet, but they, they don't end up in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> not, not in Perhaps a Drake. even more tragic. Yeah, but but, but
3: not in a Drake book. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, and the major fun of the whole book is that the, the Empress pulls into the different ports of call along the journey, um, and... Let's just talk talk about my favorite, which was the um, overly libertarian world of Hobelow. It almost feels like you're you're neat, you're poking Jim Bain with this this uh, world.
3: Look, I didn't make that stuff up. Um, I was basing everything, uh, I was basing all of the stuff on real 19th century historical models uh mrs brassy's description of living for a couple of years in cincinnati uh and problems like the guy the next store down uh butcher's hogs in the street and which is therefore reeking with blood at all times and absolutely uninterested in any of her highfalutin notions of how he ought to run his business, and that, no, you you should not, you know, spill blood and offal in the street, in <laughs> you know, in the main street. Somehow, yeah, uh, well, and...
1: Um, it, every man for themselves in this. Oh, yeah
3: well and uh, there are also memoirs of um i don't remember which one it there you know there were several uh women diarists uh, southern women diarists of the civil war one of them was uh, from quite a an upscale family from uh, the deep south but as yankee forces were threatening, she and her family uh, went west into East Texas. And so this highly cultured woman is trying to deal in a very libertarian environment. And the first thing she learned was her kids, and I I think they ranged to their 9 to 15 or thereabouts, all had to have revolvers because if they didn't they'd be bullied by the other kids in school if if you didn't have a gun of your own you're a pussy and you're fair game and, and you're gonna shoot snakes well uh <laughs> more like mexicans actually well, yeah. this is texas yeah. uh, sure. um and so i yeah, I was giving my own opinion of a libertarian society, but it was based on historical <coughs> realities.
1: It's, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of stuff you like authorially, and, but some things sure. that, uh, that, Absolutely. that you don't like so much.
3: Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, hey, I'm the author. <coughs> Write your own book.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, and this place is dangerous in that um, it's full of dinosaurs. Basically, yeah, well, they're it's full of big old fauna that will kill you. Yes, um, and several of our characters <laughs> are uh, and ran, and um, I think it's the the Starcross Lovers decided to go off and explore on their own in an air car. It <laughs> doesn't turn out as well as it might, and they have to. <laughs> and nobody's going to come and rescue them. But the, the cars all have built in the rental cars all have rifles.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well somebody you know somebody put fuel in the tank also, I mean you know there are yeah. some necessities These are the things you need on this mm. planet
1: some of one of the other uh planets was um al Mahdi um ah, yeah, which was kind of fun because it's in it there's so much stuff now that, that has fundamentalist um Islam in it it's this is a nice uh sort of reversion to the exotic middle eastern story, yeah it's, um, they're on a on a on a rough and tumble um you know in the streets of egypt and the right the it 90s. it's
3: it's certainly not a highly civilized modern place but it's an exotic place not a lethally dangerous place unless
1: you're a, a navasi running from a crowd of well of grand Holmites. <laughs> I yeah think this is where this is the planet where ran um fights off a mob with a pole or something he's a very good fighter yeah um, and he, he there's a wonderful description of him ramming the pole through someone's mouth and the teeth going into anyway that's a uh, Dra- Drakean uh, moment
3: well i steal yeah. from the best uh, you know he he thrust him through the helmet and he died champing on bronze you know that's right out of the iliad yeah, yeah. um <laughs> steal from the best
1: and he uh, he saves the, the beautiful damsel uh who in this case is some sort of uh adjunct to the uh grandholm whatever. a, a, emissary a or
3: friendly something. um
1: <laughs> that's the other thing about Rand he keeps having the he has many <laughs> he likes women he likes women
3: and you know
1: and some are rich and some are poor some are incredibly rich and some are
3: and you know, yeah. uh, his his taste is that she's warm. <laughs> I, I I repeat, I am was not describing a saint.
1: But he is he's he's very, and because of that, we like him, um, and we feel like maybe he's gonna in the end, uh, Wanda's gonna take him take him under her control and get and. <laughs> But maybe not. We can so, hope so, yeah. but,
3: you know. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, there's just so much uh, details, character exploring in Starlight. It's not a long book. Um, it's fairly short, but there's so much richness uh, packed into it. It's packed with a whole world of great ideas. Um,
3: I had fun writing it, and that was the whole point. I was trying to have fun. I was trying to do something that was not just military SF, and I... That doesn't mean that there's no action in it. There's a lot. Uh, but, yeah, I... What um,
1: had you done just prior to Starliner? Do you remember?
3: Oh, let's see. What did I do? I think I was working on... Um, last, The most recent thing for Bane had probably been um, Rolling Hot. And I think I had, of course I'd done the Northworld series for Ace. And um, then I did um, another the the Reaches series for Ace and I was doing the Reaches series uh, which was another attempt to do a space opera. But those turned out to be extremely harsh books, uh, even by my standards. And um Starliner isn't. Starliner is a fun book. There's plenty of tough stuff in it, and people certainly die. But um it's a fun book. And I'm glad to have written it.
1: We're glad to be bringing it back in this great new edition. The book is Starliner by David Drake. The new edition with excellent new Dominic Carman art is now at Booksellers Everywhere. Dave, uh, thank you so much for being with us once again and for being in studio, as it were.
3: My pleasure, and it's good to see everybody, and um, uh, good to talk to you all out there. Bye-bye.
1: This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Liaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Galen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feed at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders, under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty Oscalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals.
0: It might be, Priscilla said, sipping her wine, that Paddy's being prudent. Brunig's rock generated a great many secrets. She might well have locked them behind walls. They were in their private quarters, and at their ease, having ruthlessly rearranged schedules to gain two shifts together, saving an emergency call upon the captain, naturally. There was also the possibility of an emergency call upon the master trader, but that was not nearly so likely. At least, not until they came out of jump. I spoke to Lena, Priscilla continued. She was reclining on the lounge, her long, slim shape draped in a starry blue robe that bared her breasts, a fashion from her homeworld, where Priscilla had been the initiate of a goddess. In comparison, Sean's robe of deep red, broidered with yellow flowers and belted at his waist, was the merest commonplace. He sat on the rug beside the lounge, looking up into her face and her eyes like black diamonds beneath arching black brows. Lena hasn't had another glimpse of this wall, though she's still aware of Paddy shifting the energy raised in the dance. Somewhere, she smiled slightly, she asked me to tell you that her least willing student has become over these last few sessions somewhat more willing. Sean lifted his glass high. Behold me relieved. One naturally wishes one's heir to accumulate accolades, but least willing student of Debriot in the history of the dance is not quite in the line of one's fondest hopes. Priscilla laughed. She already has, avid student of Menfriat, she pointed out. There is that. Am I to understand that Lena remains willing to wait, to watch with the rest of us, and to hope that the child wakens to her fullness with, shall we say, as little trauma as possible? She'd rather not force Paddy into her power, Priscilla said her eyes serious. Neither would I, nor I. The healers are in accord. He raised his glass again in salute. Priscilla raised hers. There was a small, sharp clink as the rims kissed. And they drank. A moment only to savor the vintage before Priscilla raised her glass once more. Sean lifted his in echo. To the bright life, who would share our lives and our love, we invite you to this time and this place where we will welcome you and treasure you. She drank with a flourish and set the empty glass aside. Sean did the same, though with perhaps more puzzlement than flourish. Priscilla extended a hand. Her skin was cool and smooth, her fingers pale as cream against his brown palm. The familiar sweep of her aura simultaneously soothed and thrilled him. Priscilla, he ventured. Yes, my love. Are we going to have a child? She smiled, and he did, giddy with her joy. If the goddess is willing, and you are? He bent his head to kiss her hand. Willing, though laggard, why now, I wonder? A dark thread rippled through her joy, gone before he could read it. If I say that the goddess came to me in a dream and told me that now is the time, the soul which will come to us as our child is ready. Will that make you less willing? He considered that seriously. His respect for Priscilla's faith did not particularly extend to her goddess, whom he regarded as unnecessarily meddlesome. On the other hand, the Delms had made it clear that full nurseries were a priority of the house. Not that the Delms were anything less than meddlesome themselves. However, the thought of holding their child with Priscilla's black eyes and softly curling hair fair melted him where he sat. He shook his head and smiled wryly. Let us leave it there. I am willing, no, I am eager. Not too eager, I hope, Priscilla said. She swung her legs over the side of the lounge, drawing him to her as she sat up. He rose to his knees and kissed an upstanding nipple, the shiver of her delighted lust warming him. Not too eager, she repeated, running her fingers through his hair. She slipped a hand beneath his chin and raised his face, we have ours, she whispered, and kissed him. Paddy was at Runig's Rock, and she was afraid. So much depended on her, on all of them, but she was the only one who was afraid. Quinn was grim, and Silvor serious, but they weren't afraid They didn't huddle in their beds after lights out, shivering with nothing more than fear. Grandfather Lucan and cousin Corrine were quite matter of fact. Even when discussing those plans of evacuation, the success of which depended upon them staying behind to hold the enemy, to buy pilots and passengers, time to board the ship, time to tumble out into space and be well away. Time bought with Kareen and Lucan's lives, which they very well knew. And yet, they were not afraid. Paddy Yosgallen, whose duty was to stand co-pilot, to protect the pilot and the ship and the passengers. Paddy Yosgallen was afraid. Silvor whose duty was the most terrible of all to protect the babies, to keep them quiet and warm, fed and calm. And under no circumstances, in no conceivable situation, was he to allow them to fall into the hands of their enemies. Silvor carried a pistol, and Grandfather had very carefully explained who those pellets were for. And that Silvor must be very quick and very certain, and that he must not miss when it came to the last shot. Silvor was solemn. He was earnest. Silvor did not want to hurt the babies, his cousins. Certainly, he did not want to hurt himself. But Silvor was not afraid. He absorbed his duty, learned what he must do, and the manner of it. He drilled, he danced, and sometimes in the evening, when drills and dance and lessons were done, he would sit and draw pictures of home. Certain of the cats, Jeeves, the East Flower Garden, the stream, and the stepping stones. Of them all, each holding duties far more terrible than her own, only Paddy Yos Galen was afraid. Sometimes in the night, she was so overcome with fear that she cried under the blankets, her fist stuffed in her mouth, lest she wake Quinn, who had sharp ears, even in sleep. Not that Quinn would mock her, but he was her pilot. He would question her ability to do her duty, rightly so. He might properly bring his concern to Grandfather, who would, what? There was no one else to take Paddy's duty. Grandfather held a third-class license. Cousin Corrine was no pilot at all. She was Quinn's co-pilot. That duty was hers, and hers alone, and she could not let fear cripple her. Ah! The cry woke her, and she sat up, chest heaving with sobs, her face wet with tears. Lights came up, illuminating her familiar quarters on the passage where her screen, stylus, and boots were all floating significantly above the surfaces where they had been resting when she sought her bunk. No, not here, not now. She covered her face with her hands and swallowed, taking a deep breath against the sobs just as she had done the night she had decided, on the rock, what she must do with her fear. That night, she had completed a pilot's breathing exercise, and when the sobs had subsided, she had lain down and run the rainbow, telling herself at the end of the sequence not to sleep but to arise with sharpened senses and go to the practice room. She had done that without waking anyone, and there she had danced. In her mind's eye, she had danced inside her room at the end of the rainbow, and her dancing had built a closet made of stone. She had stepped into the closet and screamed out all her fear and all her tears. When she was empty, she exited and locked the closet behind her. Aboard the passage, with less than two hours until the end of her sleep shift, she could not go to any of the practice rooms. The ship would note her deviation from schedule and alert father or the captain or the officer on duty. She would have to explain herself, and it was the last thing she wanted to tell anyone, least of all father, that she was a coward, And that she had lied to him. So then, shivering, but no longer crying, Patty slipped out of her bunk. She glared at her boots, which were floating at about the level of her nose, breathed in, and snapped. Behave! They hit the floor with a solid thump. Behind her, she heard the stylus strike the desktop and roll, and her screen settle with a bump. Paddy looked about her quarters, far too cramped here for Menfriat. But it was not, she thought suddenly, too cramped to dance Debriat. For focus, was it? And to make her aware of her intent? Yes, certainly. The closet had weakened since its creation. She would reinforce it, make it so strong that the fear would never break free again. She took a breath, brought her imaginary ball in front of her heart, and called upon her intentions.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of the Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to Joe Drake, who drove Dave up here, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz.
2: And a battalion of regiments and a regimental battalion of Coast Guard cutters shouting hurrah, cutters who have their own secret ship whisperers jargon that even the Coasties don't speak. Plus a Starliner with all flags flying and decks lined with grateful readers. To David Drake, author of Starliner.
1: Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.